Aren't you glad that you were on Christ's mind while you was on that cruel cross paying for our sin debt? And that's the reason we are here this morning. We are here to celebrate the love of God. And uh, I'd like to invite everyone, please, to uh, stand with me as we uh, give reverence to the Word of God, as we read the passage of Scripture from uh, James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. And uh, I'll still be speaking about the subject, love, and actually the title of our message is, Why Do We Hurt Those People That We Most Love? Unintentionally sometimes, you know, unknowingly. And we know that this is a, a general epistle of James, one of the four Jameses in the Bible. There are uh, several James in the New Testament. Uh, one of them is called James the son of Alphaeus, or called also James the Less, found in Mark 3.18 and 15.40. There is a, a virtually unknown James in Luke 16, Luke chapter 6, verse 16. There is James the son of Zebedee and brother of John, the sons of thunder. And the author of this uh, epistle is James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, who was also um, martyred at the early date of AD 44, that's found in Acts chapter 12, verse 2. So this is the author of this epistle of James. It's primarily written to uh, the Jewish Christians, Jewish congregation, one of the earliest uh, books in the New Testament. So our study will be a practical one this morning. And if you're there, uh, say amen. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. And let's read this all together. I'd like to encourage our folks who are in their homes or wherever you are, if you have the Bibles uh, with you in your hands or in some sort of um, uh, digital print, uh, please read with me uh, God's word all together. Verse 1, begin. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust, that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lust. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think that the scripture saith in vain, the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to heaviness. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Let's have a word of prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we bless your name. We thank thee. We magnify thee for who you are and what you've done in our lives. Once again, Lord, we praise you and thank you for another day of life you have provided for us. It's your sustaining and sufficient grace that enable us to live and breathe and be able to be about today. Most of all, Lord, this day is your day because it's the first day of the week, the Lord's day, and we just want to 
Lord, yield ourselves before you. We just want, Lord, to be blessed by thy holy word today. Once again, we ask as a congregation of thy people to be merciful to us, Lord. Cleanse our hearts and our minds from every sins and iniquities and trespasses we've done against you. You are such a holy and righteous God, and you will not allow any sin that's in us, Lord, so you can pour out your blessings and your guidance upon us. So we ask for forgiveness. We ask for thy promise once again to be fulfilled in our lives that if we confess our sins, thou art faithful and just to forgive us from all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I ask you, Father, for that. And I pray, Father, that you um, anoint my lips, help me to uh, say the things that you want me to say, and may your, your name and your word be honored and be glorified today. And we pray if there's anybody who's still uh, a stranger to the love of God, if they have never experienced the saving love of Christ, may this be the day that they will accept that free gift of eternal life through the finished work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. And revive our hearts, and we ask that um, you keep us safe as we worship you today. In Jesus' name we ask and do pray. Amen and amen. You may all be seated. Thank you. All right. I'd like to uh, start this message with a question that James, the author of this epistle, had asked over 1,900 years ago. And this question is still being asked today at every level of our society. The question is, what is the source of all the fights and conflicts among us? Isn't it? Uh, we've never uh, known a particular family or community or a nation who had never experienced or undergo any kinds of conflict. We know nowadays people are hurting, isn't it? And they can be hurting in different areas of their lives. They might be uh, experiencing some physical pain. They, they might be hurting emotionally. Uh, they might be hurting in some form of relationship uh, arguments or quarrels. They might be uh, hurting financially. Maybe they lost their job or they were laid off or their pay were uh, cut because of this pandemic. So all of us experience some pain, some hurts every now and then. And we know ultimately that the cause of all pain and hardships and suffering in this world ultimately is the curse of sin. It's what had happened when man had fallen from the grace of God. The Bible says that sin brings forth death. Sin brings forth, you know, Decay and deterioration and, and uh, anything that is negative that we see nowadays. So that question is uh, always relative, isn't it? It's always relevant in the day and age that we're living in, in whatever point of history. What is the source of all the fights and conflicts among us? And in that question, we can ask, why are children killing children? Isn't it? Why do husbands beat up on their wives? Why do friends treat each other so badly sometimes? Why do we tend to hurt those we love the most? Sometimes. As I said a while ago, unknowingly or unintentionally. You know, in the book that Dr. James Dobson, a great author and preacher and radio and TV 
icon in the book, Love Must Be Tough. I don't know if you heard and read about that book. It's a wonderful book. He recorded an illustration that graphically demonstrates how deeply these issues are affecting society. You know, the conflicts among us. And in that book, he tells of uh, an illustration of a sixth grade teacher, sixth grade teacher who gave her class a creative writing assignment. Each was asked to complete a sentence that began with the words, I wish. Uh, That's a good assignment, isn't it? Don't you students love assignments? <laughs> Homework and projects? And some of our students had been to uh, a week of uh, winter break. I, I'm asking uh, my daughters, like, did your teacher give you uh, things to do during the break? So your um, thinking cap is still in tune, you know, and you won't have your, your brain be idle for a week. It's always good to keep them a little bit busy, isn't it? So I don't know if they had one, but I, I saw her very relaxed, so probably not much. All right, so this creative writing tells of a sixth grader who asks the students what he or she wishes for. So the teacher expected that the boys and girls will express wishes like, I wish I have bicycle, a bicycle, a nice bicycle, or dogs, or a new pet, or a new television sets, or, or trips to Hawaii or Disney World. Those are good wishes for, for kids, isn't it? But you know what? Instead, 20 of the 30 children made reference in their responses to their own disintegrating families, which is very sad. So a few of the actual responses were as follows, according to that book. One of the kids says, I wish my parents wouldn't fight, and I wish my father would come back. Hmm, sad. Another one said, I wish my mother didn't have a boyfriend. I wish my father didn't have a girlfriend. Or I wish my father didn't have a boyfriend. Or I wish my mother didn't have a girlfriend. Huh? In this day and age where we're living in. I wish I could get straight A so my dad would love me. Or my mother would love me. I wish I had one mom and one dad so the kids would not make fun of me. I wish I had, oh, this is kind of serious. I wish I had an M1 rifle so I could shoot those who make fun of me. Uh, this kid has some anger issues, isn't it? So although James, in the book that we read in chapter 4, verses 1 to 10, James here specifically had in mind the conflicts that leads to battered congregations and split churches. His words also apply equally well to abusive families and broken homes. The same passions that led to church dis disputes are at the root of all conflicts. Affairs of the heart, as they said, the heart of the matter is the matter of the heart, isn't it? If you remember the message from Pastor Max, I believe last week we talked about the issues of the heart. Jeremiah said that our heart is desperately wicked and deceitful. Who can know it, isn't it? You know, the heart speaks of uh, the seat of our mind, our consciousness, our whole being, you know, and... Uh, and the Bible says in the book of Proverbs that we need to give our hearts to the Lord. Yield our hearts to the Lord so our hearts will be wise. We need to have a willing heart, a whole heart. Because if we don't give our hearts to the Lord, then it will be wicked. It will be deceitful. 
So our heart is very important in the eyes of God. So the affairs of the heart, whether against God or a spouse, are remarkably similar. So following the steps James prescribes for dealing with these issues in the church will also extend their benefits into our homes and society. So that's the bulk of our study right now in James chapter 4, verse 1 to 10, because everything that's written in the Bible, even though it's primarily addressed to the church, it can benefit us also as Christians, isn't it? In our families, in our society. So why do we hurt those we love? First and foremost, we have three major points. First is the source of conflict in verses 1 to 3 of James chapter 4. In that source of conflict, there is two things that we can see here. There is the selfish passions from verses 1 and 2 and sinful prayers and also verses 2 and 3. First is the selfish passions. Under that is universal desires. As we read, we last that war in your members. So let's look back at the origin of universal desires. Of course, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, we have a slide here. Don't you love that, isn't it? Uh, did that really happen? <laughs> Probably not, but I just want to make you smile. Um, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, and we know it's the Garden of Eden, and when we look back at the days of creation that God made man on the Sixth day, all right? Because on the seventh day, he hallowed it. He rested. He enjoyed what he had created. And we know during the days of creation, he did not make man on the first, second, third, fourth, fifth day, but he made man on the sixth day. Why? Logically speaking, he had to make man on the sixth day because he has to prepare the whole world conducive for man to live. You know, he had to produce all of those things that he said, they were good. Fruit trees, animals, just the right atmosphere with land and sunshine. All those things that make life conducive in this world. Perfect. Perfectly balanced, complete, beautiful environment. And I wish when we get to heaven, God will give us a, a throwback of uh, the world, of the earth before man fall into sin. Isn't it? And we know we're going to enjoy heaven and we're going to enjoy uh, the millennial reign of Christ here for a thousand years. Like he will lift up the curse and there will be like total peace and prosperity and the world will be reformed, isn't it? But just use our sanctified imagi imagination. What was the world look like before the fall of man? But we know the story, isn't it? Man who has been deceived by the old serpent, by the devil, by Lucifer, and they rebelled against God. They disobeyed God. There's only one commandment and rule that they have to, you know, obey God at all times, and they can do the rest, whatever they want. But look at that. Kung ano pa yung bawal, yung pa yung kanilang ginawa. Alright? And they were tested by God, and they failed miserably, and we always make a joke that our first mother, the mother of us all, Eve, ate us out of Eden. Amen? So that's why they have to be good cooks, alright? So we will also eat ourselves out of our houses sometimes, you know? So when Adam and sinned before God, God pronounced the curse, and we know that they died when they ate of the forbidden fruit, isn't it? Did they just like collapse and died when Eve took 
the fruit. And when she gave one to her husband, Adam, and he ate also, did, he, did they die like right away? We know they did not because we know from the scriptures that Adam was able to live for more than 900 years old. 900 years of earthly life. But what died when they disobeyed God is their spiritual life. They ceased to be in communion, in connection with God because now there is something that blocks their relationship. It was cut off because sin brings forth death. So, they, we know that they start dying physically, but still they were able to live for 900 years because the world is not so much polluted by sin during that time. It's still uh, abundantly gracious in prolonging the life of an individual, but spiritually, they were separated from God. Now God cannot talk to them like they used to talk to in the cool of the day. You know, they can see God in His glorified form, we don't know, like a Shekinah glory, God the Father, and they are not consumed, they are not smitten, they are not killed. They can stand it because they are perfectly innocent before the fall. But since they, they fell into sin, they died spiritually. And from Genesis 3.15, the first pronouncement of the gospel, amen? I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise thy heel. This is the first pronouncement of the Messiah, of the gospel, the good news that there will come a day that the seed of the woman, and we know that is Jesus Christ, virgin born through the con conception of the Holy Spirit, supernaturally, miraculously, prophetically fulfilled. He will be the one that will bruise the head of the serpent, which is Satan, and in the process, it will bruise his heel. Meaning he will be pierced on his foot, on his feet, on the cross. He will be bruised and he will bleed and he will die. But eventually that will be the greatest victory of the Messiah. Because he will take away the power and the curse of the sting of death. Hell and the grave once and for all. So despite of their fallen nature of the fall of man, God is still loving. Amen? God is still gracious and merciful that even though... 4,000 years before Christ, He already promised a Redeemer. He already promised a Messiah. So we can say that when we get saved, salvation or redemption is not just going to heaven. Isn't it? Being saved is not just about going to heaven and escaping hell. But getting saved or being born again, being converted to God's family is all about our relationship being restored to our God. Since sin cut off, separated us from our relationship, our connection, our communication with God, when Christ came and died on the cross and He rose again and He sent up into heaven and when we receive Him as our Savior, we got saved and, that, and, and going to heaven is only like a, a byproduct of that relationship being restored with God the Father. Sometimes it's hard to witness to other people because, yes, they want to go to heaven. They want to accept Christ, but they don't want to have a relationship with God. You know why? Because if they start having a relationship with God, this is what we call just professions of faith, not really possession of faith. When they started to have a relationship with God the Father, then they have to 
deny themselves of worldly lust and pleasure. They need to live a, a righteous and a holy life. They need to obey the commandments of God, isn't it? And sometimes it's hard to do that because we as human beings, we enjoy sin. We enjoy the affairs of the world, isn't it? But ultimately, if you are really saved, if you are really genuinely converted to Christ, then the Bible says you will become a new creature. You will have a new love. You will have a new desire. You will have a new destiny. You will have a new direction. And you will love the things that Jesus Christ loves. And one of the things that He loves is He loves His Heavenly Father. And, and for us as Christians, we ought also to love our Heavenly Father. So, once again, salvation is not just about going to heaven, but primarily salvation is fixing, reconciling our broken relationship with God. Because you can never go to heaven if your relationship with God is not fixed. Amen? If you still have sin in your life, if, you've, if the righteousness of Christ is never imputed to you. So when that relationship is fixed, you had a now a father and son or father and daughter relationship, you became a child of God. And of course, He will welcome you to His home in heaven when it's time for you to die. Amen? Or when it's time for Christ to bring His bride to heaven by way of rapture. So, we see here, when Adam and Eve sinned before God, they became independent creatures cut off from the life of God. From that point forward, for now 6,000 years almost of human history, we humans have to find life from within ourselves. Before our, our life can be given by God, it's not within, it's without. It's, it's God giving it to us. We are content in the Garden of Eden. Now, we have to find life within ourselves. We had to satisfy our own desire. What are those desires? The desire to be somebody, isn't it? That's why there's the invention of YouTube, isn't it? <laughs> you can be famous, you can, you can get some attention, you can get some likes, some followers, and, and we all like that, isn't it? How many here doesn't want anybody to like what they post? And sometimes we count people that like our posts, isn't it? Because inadvertently, naturally, we as human beings like some attention. You know, when there's a group picture, isn't it? What's the first person that you will look for? You will not look at your best friend. or How do I look like? Did I smile right? Or how was my angle? How was the lighting, you know? Of course, you will look first for yourself because naturally, we are... Yes, attention seekers. We focus primarily upon ourselves because we desire to be somebody about the desire to have security, the desire to be loved, the desire to do something worthwhile. So what happened instead of resting in contentment with all their needs supplied by God during the times of Adam and Eve, they entered a struggle to find life where it does not exist. So all of us have that universal desire. Second is unfulfilled desires. It says there in our verse, ye have not, and ye lust and cannot obtain, ye have not. So what is the problem now? Our inability to fulfill these desires can lead to frustration and hostility. Isn't it? James says, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain, ye fight and war. You see folks, frustrated by people and circumstances, Sometimes we, we lash out at those around us. 
we become willing to hurt and destroy in an effort to meet our needs. After all, especially in the unsaved world, since we are all competing for the same things, it's like a rat race, isn't it? In the secular life, we will do anything to eliminate the competition. So we envy what we think others have, grieve as long as we don't have it, and continually struggle to find a way to get it. Isn't it? That's the world we're living in right now. There are a lot of unfulfilled desire. So it, that is the first, you know, source of conflict. But the second is sinful prayers. Sinful prayers. Verses 2 and 3 in James chapter 4. First is asking not. And we know that prayerlessness is a symptom of our independence. For a Christian, take note of that. Prayerlessness is a symptom of our independence. We need to combat prayerlessness and attitudes which go along with it. What are those attitudes? When you say, I'm going to do things my own way. Who's that person who sang that? I'll do it my way. You know? There he goes, Sinatra. He did it his own way. Anyways, and what happened? Huh? I will decide what's best for me. Or another, I am perfectly capable of running my own life. This is such a little thing, I can handle it myself. With the statement, ye have not, because ye ask not, James here gives us a vital reminder. As long as we look for fulfillment in life from any source other than God, then this conflict will never cease. We will never be content with who we are, what we have, where we are headed, or what we have done. We will continue to feel frustrated and others can be hurt. So, asking not is a form of sin, isn't it? Because you lack of faith. Prayerlessness is powerlessness. Prayerlessness is a symptom of our independence. And God doesn't want to be us to be independent. He wants us to be always dependent on Him for everything. Second thing is asking amiss. This does not mean finding some girl and asking her out. Alright, young guys? Asking a miss. Or asking a mister. Or, there you go. You got it. <laughs> but what is, this means asking a miss. This is to ask with the wrong motive. Oh my. Sometimes we have to check our motives, isn't it? Sometimes they play tricks on us. They play tricks on our hearts. You know, instead of a prayer yielding to God's plan and purpose, it is a prayer, this is the problem, to gratify our own desires. It is an attempt to put a spiritual, good housekeeping seal of approval on our struggle to satisfy our own desires. You see, if God were to answer such prayers, asking amiss, asking with the wrong motive, it would only strengthen it will only serve to strengthen us in our independence from the Lord. So there's a sentence here. How would you finish this sentence, honestly? You don't have to tell me uh, verbally right now, audibly, but between you and the Lord. For to me to live is, there's a blank there. Of course, you know, the scripture behind that, isn't it? In Philippians chapter 1. But can we put in that blank 
For to me to live is a job. How about for me to live is a goal? For me to live is a possession? For me to live is a person? Like what a young woman and an older woman prayed before God in a, in a church. Lord, thy will be done, but just give me John. You know? For me to live is what? For you, God's people, brethren. Is life for you defined as a job, a goal, a possession, or another person? Or you can honestly say that life for you, the fulfillment of all your desires, is no other than Jesus Christ. Because Christianity is all about a person, amen? The Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not saying not to be like Christ in this passage of Scripture, not even to serve Christ, but just to receive from Christ all that you need. And He's willing and generous to give you what you desperately need, what you ought to have in this life. So are you still struggling to meet your own needs? That's why there's fighting and warring and crushing the competition? Or have you learned to rest in Christ's sufficiency? That's the question today. So second thing we can see here, not just the source of conflict, in that there is selfish passions with sinful desires and universal desires. There are also sinful prayers, asking not and asking amiss. But second thing, reason that we heard those that we love is there is the seriousness of compromise. Verses 4 to 6 of James chapter 4. And these are strong words uh, among the Jewish believers during the time of James. The adulterers and adulteresses know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. So there's some seriousness in that tone, isn't it? First, it resembles adultery in verses 4 and 5. And in that, there is infidelity in verse 4. And we know adultery occurs when one person looks outside the exclusive relationship of marriage to get his emotional and sexual needs met. A third party is added to the relationship that does not belong. And I don't have to elaborate this, that especially here in America, we live in a day and age as 2 Timothy chapter 3 had described. We live in perilous times, isn't it? Dangerous times, more morally compromised society. Because you know what? Like in the days of Noah, the Bible says before, he will come again, they're eating and partying and marrying. But they disregard the morals of God, His law and His commandments. And we know that this is very serious immorality in the scriptures. So that is human adultery. But we talk about spiritual adultery here. The spiritual adultery occurs when Christians look outside the relationship to God to get their needs met. A third party, the world, is invited into that relationship. And take note, when the scripture speaks of the world, there are three kinds of world in the Bible, especially in the New Testament. First is the world that is known as cosmos. This is the physical world, the earth, this blue planet that we live in, and of course, including the stars and the galaxies. When the Bible says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament show His majesty. So the world is just the physical earth that we're living in. Second thing is, like the Bible says in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. That speaks of 
human beings, of mankind, of people in this world that live beyond uh, uh, the history of men from the beginning all the way to the future, that Jesus Christ died for all men. He died for the sins of all men throughout all history. Then the third definition of the world, the word world, refers to the philosophies and practices that fallen men have devised in their effort to live, take note, apart from God. Thus, they are against God or anti-God. So we can summarize it like the evil system of the world. The way human beings live apart from God, like hedonistic, paganistic kind of life. To embrace the world, especially in this context of fulfilling our desires, is like inviting a hated rival into the marriage bed. Isn't it? And the Bible says in Hebrews 13, uh, I believe that marriage is honorable, the Bible says, and the bed undefiled. So when we crave acceptance from the world in a spiritual adultery sense, we reject God and set ourselves against Him as though we were His enemy. That's why it says there, you are enmity between God. Because the Bible says, whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Isn't it? It's clear. You know, we don't hate the people of the world, but we hate the sinful lifestyle that is against God and His law and His morals. Amen? So, this should not happen. Spiritual adultery and of course, adultery among marriage because it is infidelity. And there's compromise in that. A bad and dangerous compromise. Second thing, it is insensitivity in verse 5. Do you think that the scripture said in vain the spirit that dwelleth in us lusted to envy? James reminds us that the Holy Spirit, the very person of God, lives within us. Aren't you glad for that? That's one of the best um, evidence in the scripture of the um, assurance of salvation of our eternal security. And remember in the book of Ephesians chapter 1 that when we got saved, the Holy Spirit sealed us until the day of redemption. So the word seal there is like during the ancient times when kings sealed something that is written, a document, with this ring or signet, it speaks that, that, that writing that document is official, that even the king himself cannot revoke it, cannot, you know, change it, because it's an official decree. You know, it will stand same thing when we were sealed of the Holy Spirit of promise. It's like uh, when we buy a house, isn't it? When you're serious of buying a house or buying a, a car or leasing it, the, the dealer or, or um, the, the person who sells the house will ask if you are really serious to put a down payment. And sometimes those down payment cannot be refunded anymore. So you really have to think hard. Weigh your options, the pros and cons, and, and decide if you are really eager and, 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 and your belief is really out there to purchase or to, to acquire that certain something. So the same thing when we got saved. When we got saved, God the Father sent His Holy Spirit to live inside of us. That's miraculous. He made our bodies, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians, His temple. So it means that the Holy Spirit lives within you to guide you, to illuminate you, to teach you the things of God from the scriptures. He's there and He's not just a force. He's not just 
like you know an outside force or or like a, a, a philosophy, but he's a real person because he is part of the Trinity, the third person in the Trinity, and and he is such a real person because the Bible says you can grieve the Holy Spirit. You can make him sad. He can make he you can make him weep when you disobey God when you rebel against Him. And the Bible says also, quench not the Holy Spirit, meaning you can like throw cold water to Him when He's trying to work in you. Isn't it? Have you noticed those days and points of your life when you are being prompted by the Holy Spirit? You know, you have to talk to that person about Jesus, about His love, because you may never see that person again. This is a great opportunity. And, oh, I'm so shy. What would other people say? What if He rejects or she rejects me. What if I don't have enough knowledge and you're quenching the Holy Spirit's working in your life? Sometimes the Holy Spirit like, you know, taps in your heart and, and you saw a need and, and you are able to meet that need in some way, in simple way, in a particular way. But you become uh, be carnal in your thinking and you said, eh, I have more needs than this person. And you uphold or withhold that help. You're quenching the Spirit working in your life. So the Holy Spirit is a real person. He lives upon us, inside of us. He's a down payment that what God has promised of our full redemption, He will fulfill. That's why you'll never lose your salvation because it's everlasting. The Bible says no man can pluck us out from the hands of God. God the Father's hand is upon us. Jesus' hand is upon us. And the Holy Spirit seals us, envelops us. That's why you can never lose your salvation. Yes, we will still sin, we will still fall, we will still stumble, we will still fail God. But there is forgiveness. There is the Holy Spirit that will prompt our hearts and will tell us, Hey, just confess your sin. Forsake it. Ask God to forgive you and move on. Move forward. And if we will lose our salvation as Christians, living in New Testament, grace period right now, if the Holy Spirit comes to our lives and made our bodies His temple, and we lose our salvation as other people teach us, then can we bring the Holy Spirit in hell with us forever? No, we can't. It's contradictory to the Scriptures. That's why the Bible says, you know, grieve not the Holy Spirit, quench not the Holy Spirit. The Holy, Holy Spirit is the one that will illuminate us, teach us, and even praise for us when we cannot even pray for ourselves. He makes groanings, the Bible says, that we cannot understand. He prays for our behalf. So it says there in verse 5, Do you think that the scripture said in vain the spirit that dwelleth in us lasted to envy? The very person of God lives within us and he is jealous of our relationship with him. When we look at any other source to meet our needs, we are treading on the feelings of our lifelong companion, the divine comforter. Aren't you glad you have the divine comforter within you? I tell you that's a blessing. What a, a, what a down payment. What a, a, a seal of our inheritance by the Lord giving us the Holy Spirit, our comforter. So second thing, when we uh, have compromise, it resembles adultery, but also it reveals arrogance. All right? In verse 6, it says there, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisted the proud. Of course, proud people are arrogant people. But... I thank God for the word but there. Makes a difference. But give it grace unto the humble. Of course, we can see here what is the meaning of grace. 
Most Christians have a good understanding of grace as it is applies to salvation. Amen? We understand that we are saved by grace through faith. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. So grace simply means when it comes to salvation, we understand that God did something for us that we could never do for ourselves. God did something for us that we could never do for ourselves. What are those things when it applies to salvation? First, He erased our sin debt. Masarap yung feeling na walang utang, di ba? Pero sino dito walang utang? Alright. Oh, walang nagtaas ng kamay. Ibig sabihin, lahat tayo ay may pagkakautang. Sabi nga, ating buhay ay utang lang sa Panginoon. Borrowed life, di ba? And uh, I discover here in America, if you don't borrow, you will borrow yourself in the ground, in the sun, you'll suffer. Because you need to work up your credit history or something like that. Of course, there are principles in the Bible that we need to be good stewards when we borrow, isn't it? But maybe, sabi nga nila, sa hirap ng buhay, you know, uh, actually everything that we have sometimes, we don't really own them. It's just in the paper, it's under our name, but actually the bank owns them, isn't it? You know, or China owns them, something like that. But uh, we know that some of the Christians, they're saying, ha, huh? ang hirap ng buhay dito sa mundo, I'm suffering, I'm being persecuted, I have a lack of a lot of things in my life. Sana mag na. Yun na lang. Parang escape route nila, no? Sana mag na. So I will leave my debts behind. Don't you know that's the reason why America will be bankrupt when the rapture comes? Because the good Christians that are living here are the ones who are paying the bills, actually. Paying their taxes, keeping the economy going on, isn't it? Because they are commanded by God to be good stewards. But if they are gone, who's going to pay Uncle Sam? Yeah? Well, the Bible says we need to set our affection on things above anyways, not on things on the earth. Everything that we have in this world are just temporary. There are just temporal resources that we can use for the glory of God. Isn't it? As a channel of blessing to others. But go back to our point when it comes to salvation. We know that God did something for us that we could never do for ourselves. He erased our sin debt. He gave us a righteous standing before God. Where did that righteousness come from? From Jesus Christ. That's why Christ has to live 33 and a half years to fulfill all the law, to obey all the commandments, to live the life that no other sinful man could ever live. Perfect, holy, righteous. So when we accept Him, we don't just accept what He had done for us on the cross, the payment for our sin, but we accept His righteousness. That was imputed to us. So when we get to heaven, when God the Father looks at us, He doesn't see our sinfulness. We are justified, declared righteous. Why? Because we have the righteousness of Christ in us. Everything that Christ did for 33 and a half years were given to us for our benefit. So we are now clothed like a robe with the righteousness of Christ. That's why we can get to heaven. Amen? That's why... Isn't it? I, I told you before, why? If, if Christ's mission is just to save us from our sins, how come He did not just appear as a 33-year-old man and just go to the cross a week before the passion of Christ? Go to the triumphal entry in Jerusalem and then, you know, have all those things happen to Him, the illegal trials and die. How come He has to be born 
of a virgin as a baby? How come he has to grow up like a little child, adolescent to a, an adult person? Because it's all prophesied in the scripture. He has to be born so he can fulfill all righteousness. So he can be our example. Amen? So when it comes to salvation, he did all those things for us that we cannot do to ourselves. He gave us, you know, forgiveness. He gave us a righteous standing before God. He raised our sin death. He made us spiritually, spiritually alive so we could enjoy an intimate fellowship with the Father. But you know what? We tend to be a little more fuzzy-minded when it comes to the grace of God in the Christian life. Yes, we understand the grace of God in our salvation, but what about our Christian life? We sometimes tend to view the grace of God in our Christian life as covering for our failures or helping us to do or endure difficult things, which are good, which are okay. And sometimes the grace of God is abused, misused by some immature Christians because they think, oh, I'm now saved by the grace of God and they made it as a license to do whatever they want in this life, which is sometimes or a lot of times are opposite upon God's will upon their lives. It becomes a license to sin. Or they become so liberal, or on the other hand, legalistic. But that ought not to be, brethren, because the grace of God is not a license to sin, because the grace of God should make you realize not to sin. You have to sin less and less, because now you had experienced the grace of God, the undeserved favor, the unmerited love. See, somehow we fail to understand that the grace in the Christian life still means God doing us, God doing for us which the things which we could never do for ourselves. Which is everything, isn't it? Because God said, Jesus said, without me, he can do nothing. That's why James writes, God gives more grace. He is ready to take control of our lives, meet our needs, put an end to our struggles to become everything we need for life, the thing that Adam lost in the garden. If we will allow him, if we will not be arrogant enough or proud to accept the grace of God because the grace of God is something that we all need. What is the, mean, the means of the grace of God? As we just look about the meaning, it says there, God give, gives grace to the humble. What are those people who are humble? Sa kapampangan, humble. Alright? Those who admit their helplessness and begin to look to God to meet their needs. Amen. Diba? Lahat naman tayo helpless eh. Diba? Hopeless before. But thanks be to God, the grace of God appeared in our lives. Instead of continuing in their independence, arrogantly refusing to admit the impossibility of a satisfying life apart from God, they begin to walk in dependence upon Him for everything. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? Nothing, isn't it? So we can depend upon Him for everything. You see, God hates independent living. Here in America, it's a culture, uh, when you're 18, you're, you're sort of to be like feeling sort of semi-independent, isn't it? So like, uh, years ago, they, you know, uh, American families could kick their kids out of their homes because they want to train them to be independent. Uh, get a job, part-time, put yourself uh, into school, learn some good hard-working ethic. But since uh, I think Obamacare was 
passed eight, eight, ten years ago, that you can still be under the insurance of your mom and dad until you're 26. So they just rather like stay in the mom's basement or attic, isn't it? They don't want to be independent. It's not, you know, depend upon mom and dad. But for, for families of Filipinos, uh, it's our culture that we have very, very strong family ties, isn't it? Like the great-grandfather still lives with the grandfather and the father and the grandchildren, isn't it? Because we love, we love the cooking of one another, you know, and we just want to see each other. But here in America, it's a cultural one that uh, young people try to have their independence. But when it comes to spiritual living, God hates independent living apart from Him. That is why He resists the proud. Because a proud person says, Ah, I don't really need God. I got it all figured out. I got all the resources I need. I have enough strength and wisdom upon me inside of me to do my own life, to do my own thing. And God doesn't like that. God will not support His children in an independent lifestyle. He forces us to choose between the world or Himself. Third thing and lastly, why do we hurt sometimes those that we love? Because we found out there's a source of conflict. There is some seriousness and compromise. But let's look at the positive side. There is the steps, there are the steps to correction. Verses 7 to 10 of James chapter 4. First step to correction is to be submissive. Chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves therefore to God. Be submissive. It is very unfortunate nowadays, but true, isn't it? That Christ can be in our lives, but not be in control of our lives. Just as it took an act of the will to choose to accept Christ as Savior, it also takes an act of the will to yield to Him as our Lord. Ito yung mahirap eh, yung discipleship, yung, yung maturity, to yield to the Christ as our Lord. We must give Him permission here to do whatever He wants with our lives. Telling Him that more than anything else, we want His will for our lives, whatever that means, whatever it takes. If it means giving God the right to choose our circumstances, our health, our measure of prosperity, our location, our job, everything, knowing as He takes control, he puts an end to the conflict that characterizes our lives. Ito yung medyo mahirap, tiba? Letting God have complete sovereignty in our lives. Whatever that means, whatever it takes, whatever His will in our lives. So this is in the spectrum of every area of our lives. Job, huh? location, our successes or prosperity in our life, even our health. Diba? Nowadays, we have folks in our church who are experiencing some infirmities. And we even have our own one uh, sister in the Lord here. You know? And maybe in, in the early times of her uh, ordeal, we might have some questions before God. We might have some doubts about his promises, isn't it? Uh, we may think in a personal way, and it's okay. It's okay to, to ask God, you know, because we're human beings. We have to express what we feel. And, and Christ is always there as a high priest, able to hear and listen and be able to discern what we feel. We can ask, Lord, how come I'm sick? 
How come this is happening to me? You know, I've, I've served you. I've been faithful. I, I'm trying to walk in your ways. I'm trying to follow your steps. Uh, I've been faithful in my stewardship. How come I don't feel well? You know, uh, personally, I cannot have the exact answer for that because God deals with all of us in a special way, in a personal way, isn't it? Um, there's only one answer that I could say. Why do we have sufferings in this world? And the Bible declares is ultimately the curse of living in a fallen world. Where there is sin, and we know that there is sin in this world, sufferings and hardships and sickness will come. But thanks be to God, there is the promise of God. There is complete redemption for a Christian. Amen? Even though our physical condition is not fully redeemed, that's why there is the rapture. There is a time that Christ will, you know, translate this tabernacle, this tent, this temporary abode, this house of clay, this corrupt, mortal, physical being that we have. No matter how hard you work out or you diet or you exercise, if you have the perfect figure and if you're uh, athletic or you are uh, an Olympian, I tell you, your body will still deteriorate. You will still get, get old and get cranky and get weary because we are all heading there because ultimately it's the curse of sin. But thanks be to God, amen, there is the promise of a new body. A new tabernacle, a new house of God, not made with hands, the Bible says, but reserved from us, from the glory. That's why we look forward to that. That's why the Bible says we need to teach ourselves to number our days so we can apply our hearts to wisdom. Aren't you glad there is something new that's coming for you and me? So that, that ought to encourage ourselves. That ought to encourage our spiritual walk with God. That there is something not made by the hands of this world, but made by the hands of God awaiting us. Our perfect, glorified, immortal, incorruptible body like Christ had when he resurrected from the grave. But while we are still here on earth, we will experience some sickness. Nobody is immune with uh, COVID-19. The first time it came around, isn't it? And now we have some folks that are being plagued by this pandemic. And you might be asking, how come that happened? Ultimately, probably God only knows the answer and the reason because we know that they are kids who have cancer at a young age, isn't it? They said it might be because of hereditary issues or genetic makeups that are, are, are corrupted or by the environment or we can say many, many factors. Yes, it might be so. But once again, there is this positive outlook heavenly perspective that we can have as Christians. There's something new. There's something good and great awaiting for all those that believe in Christ. There is that promise of a resurrected body. Amen? And we can look forward to that. And it will be guaranteedly fulfilled, you know, in our lifetime, I might say, because the rapture is just around the corner. But when that happens, let's just know that God is still in control. We just need to submit our lives to Him. Second thing that we can see here in the steps of correction, 
not just to be submissive, but to be separated. Verses 7 and 8. All right? How to be separated? First is to resist the devil. Satan initiated the lie that says we can be like God so that we don't need God. Diba? That's the lie from Adam and Eve that were given. If you eat this food, you will be like gods. You will know the knowledge of good and evil. And human beings, we cannot, you know, handle the knowledge of what's good and evil. Only God can because he's always good. He'll never be evil because he's pure and holy and righteous. But for us, no, even though we know what's good, we will not do it. And even though we know it's evil, we will do it. Yeah, isn't it? So really, did you become like God? No, it was a lie from the pits of hell that Satan initiated. He's the one who keeps trying to get us to live independent of God, to struggle to define life on our own terms. So, resisting the devil begins with rejecting the lie and accepting the fact that we can't have real life apart from God. Yet some still try to ride the fence, isn't it? You've got to be miserable. I've said it before, those that are trying to ride the fence or become carnal or worldly Christians, I've said it before, they just have enough Jesus in them that they can't really enjoy the world, but still enough of the world in them that they can't really enjoy Jesus. That's a miserable life to live. The Bible says you have to have just one master, isn't it? And the best master is the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, resist the devil. Second is receive God's grace. And we, we uh, read there in 7 and 8, draw nigh to God. So drawing near to God means that we go to Him to meet our needs, to supply us with whatever we require to face any circumstances. Aren't you glad that God's grace is just sufficient in every time of need, in every trial? And when it's sufficient, it is also sustaining. It will go through until you overcome the trial. Until your hope is in sight. That's the amazing thing about God. He just knows what we need and how to meet that need in the right way. You know, as we draw near to God, we find, more, we find Him more real to us. Diba? Talagang God is real. Sometimes, we can only like know that God is real when we are in hard times. Diba? It's like Jesus is sweeter and uh, closer to us when times, times are tough, when we are in a trial, when we are in hardship. But when everything is smooth sailing, everything is nice and everything, uh, our relationship is just nominal. For, but when there are tough times, hard times, the more you pray, the more you read your Bible, the more you seek His will, the more you try to be closer to Him because you, you feel like, oh, how can I live more? How can I go on without God in my life? See, God is just wise sometimes to allow us to experience some pain. So we need to reject also sinful attitudes and actions. The order in which James put these commands is important. First, we resist the devil. Second, we reject the lie. He continually tries to feed us. We draw near to God. Secondly, allowing him to do for us all things we discovered we could not do. Only then, as we rest in dependence upon him, do we find the power to overcome sinful habits and reject the sinful attitudes that filled our hearts? So that's in order. That's why James wrote that. Resist, receive God's grace, and reject sinful attitudes and actions. And lastly, when you do the steps to correction, 
when you are submissive, you are separated, then you can be also sober-minded. You know? Why does James give the command in verses 9 and 10 to mourn and weep? You know? I heard some mga Chinese funeral, sometimes they hire people to mourn and weep. So it looks so touching, you know? May ganun ba sa mga Pilipino? You know, yung mga, ah, nananaghoy, ah, umiyak talaga. Kaya ta kala mo yung taong namatay, very influential. No, belly, uh, like a philanthropist, di ba? But here, the command to mourn and weep, is that a command to make us miserable? No. Why does he tell us to turn off the laughter and turn on the tears? Reminds me of Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there's a time for everything, isn't it? There's a time to weep, a time to laugh, there's a time to mourn, a time to be happy, isn't it? There is just specific times in our lives. Why does he tell us to... to Turn off the laughter and turn on to tears. Because until we take these issues seriously, isn't it? When somebody mourn or weep, there are some sincerity, some serious issues happening in their lives. When we take these issues seriously, we will never find the solution to the wars and fightings that devastate our churches and divide our families. We must be honest about the nature of our problem and accept God's solution. Amen? When we respond in this way, Humbling ourselves before God, admitting that any kind of satisfying life is, is impossible apart from God, then that's the only time He will lift us up from the shattered, broken pieces of our lives and put us on display as a trophy of His grace. And I want all of us here by God's grace, when we go through some fiery trials, some deep waters, some shattering storms in our lives, and we come out refined, and better as a Christian. Don't you know that God is pleased when that happens? You become a trophy. You become one of His champions of faith. And His name is glorified and magnified because He had worked through you and you became something that He designed and He intended for you to become. That gives glory to the name of Christ. He makes bitter hearts sweet, isn't it? And ruined lives profitable he puts an end to the conflicts among us and we cease to hurt those we love when we take these steps to correction seriously and with sincerity. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for these words of life that we can see in the book of James chapter 4. Even though, Lord, we just only scratched the surface, but I hope that something that was said this morning had been helped to our brethren here and those that are listening and before we end this uh, invitation, before we have our uh, closing song and some announcement, as we always do, I'd like to extend this invitation for those who don't know of having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. No, He loves you so much because you are the crowning pick of His creation. You are created in the image of God, but sin came into the sin. And that image was distorted. Um, we became an enemy of God, condemned already on our way to hell because of our sin. The wages of sin, the Bible says in Romans 6.23, is death. Not just physical death, but the most horrible kind of death is spiritual death. That is being separated from God for all eternity in the lakes of eternal fire. But God commended or demonstrated His love toward us, Romans 5, 8, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So I tell you, the good news 
that even though there's the bad news that we have sinned before a holy and righteous God and we are doomed, but the good news is God loves you. He sent His Son, Christ Jesus, to die on the cross. He took your place and my place. He died willingly. He shed His blood. But after three days, He rose again from the grave. And now He's praying for you to be saved. So if there's any person who can hear my voice, wherever you are, you're not sure if death comes your way, you have a home in heaven, a forgiveness of your sin, and you want to be reconciled, you, don't, you want to have that relationship restored, with the Lord God who created you. Now is the day for you to trust His Son, Christ Jesus, to be your Lord and Savior. Just pray this way. Lord Jesus, I admit that I am a sinner. I'm lost. I need you to save me. I repent of all my sins. Forgive me, O Lord. And by faith, I receive Jesus Christ to be my Lord and personal Savior. Thank you for saving me today. And by your grace, help me to live for you and know you more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. That's a prayer that the Lord will always listen and take heed of a repentant sinner. But for us as Christians here, how's our love to the Lord this morning? How's our relationship with our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord? among our families. Are, is there any conflict? Is there any misunderstanding? It's now time to talk to God and ask for His guidance, for His wisdom. It's now time to ask God for strength, also for forgiveness for those who had wronged us, either unilaterally or bilaterally. Forgiveness is always beneficial for those who ask and for those who give it. And don't be deceived by the lie of the devil, by sowing seeds of discord and discontentment and conflict. God wants us to live peaceably among men. He wants us to have a passion for Him like we've never had before. Because is always there for us. And in the spice of scripture, it says, draw nigh to God and He will draw nigh to you. You know, that's the best kind of life when we know that God is near us, living for Him. Lord God Almighty, as your people pray for something that's only between them and you in their hearts as they make some decisions or commitment, we ask you, Lord, for your guidance for your wisdom. And we know, Lord, sometimes we hurt those people that we love because we are just not sensitive enough to know your will, your perfect plan in our lives. And now, Lord, through the help of thy word and through the Holy Spirit, we ask, Lord, for victory. We ask thee, O Father, for reconciliation. We ask thee, Father, for restoration. We ask thee, O Father, for these relationships to be mended. And we know the grace of God and the love of God, His mercy is always there in our disposal, Lord, to do these things. And help us, Lord, as we face another week to reconcile this lost and dying world with Jesus Christ as your witnesses in our Christian testimony, in our uh, 
witnessing, Lord, of our lives and of sharing your word, Lord, may they see people with hope, people with peace, and people with confidence with God, in God. They see people that's loving and understanding. We know there's so much hate in this world right now. There's so much division and conflict. And they need to see some Christians with joy and hope and peace and smile in their faces. We know, Lord, that we're not free from problems and trials. We have our own depressions, but we know that the joy of the Lord is forever our strength. And the joy of the Lord can be distinguishable in our, in our lives because it's not us who generates it. It is the God of heaven. It's the love of God that make us, Lord, do it. So help us, O oh Father, whatever prayers and petitions that we had today. May your name be honored and glorified as your people pray as we add this invitation. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.